This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Ben Schiller, Features Editor here at Coindesk. And today, Danny Nelson is out on a well-deserved vacation, as is Cam Thompson. But we have a very special guest uh, in their place. That's David Z. Morris. He is the chief columnist here at Coindesk. And he's also the creator of the Crypto Crooks podcast, which is a very, very good show about all the crimes and miscreants of crypto history, of which there are many, many, many interesting characters. Uh, so welcome to the show, David. Hi, Ben. So today we're going to break from our traditional format on this show uh, with with the segments that we normally have and just get into one big show with David because he is a big uh, brain. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's been an exciting week, obviously. It has. Uh, and we're going to get into that exciting week now. So obviously last week was a big, big deal for crypto regulation with the lawsuits against Binance and then Coinbase. Very next day from the SEC, uh, and it's uh, a big bombshell development. And we've been digesting that ever since. So the big week of last week is also the big week of this week. So what do you make of this, David? Just give us a kind of 30,000 feet view of this moment for crypto. It seems like a real reckoning moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the 30,000 foot view is that this is pretty much the big fight in terms of what's going to happen, I would say, for the next 10 years in the United States, because after that, I think there will be other factors in play. Yeah, we have to like prove that this industry has actual like a right to exist and a reason to exist and some value. And specifically, it's time to make clear the argument that the current securities rules don't fit the real goals that people are pursuing in this space and to convey that there's, you know, harm that can ensue from the kind of, you know, fairly slapdash regulation that I think it's fair to say we're seeing here. So, David, uh, before we get into the lawsuits, just to clarify for our readers and listeners here, I mean, they're quite different lawsuits, right? I mean, they both look at security regulation and possible violations by those companies. But it seems like the charges against Binance are much more serious than the ones against Coinbase. Do you want to just go into that? Yes. And, and I think that it, that itself speaks to some larger questions about the process here. You know, I, I wrote a column after this about the difference between moral sins and crimes under the law, right? And Binance, those allegations included stuff that I think we would consider moral sins, as, even in the finance industry, like manipulating prices, being very self-aware about breaking the law and engaging in some alleged conspiracy type situations to get around the, the law. And that's quite different from the Coinbase allegations, which are strictly violations of the securities regulations it's much milder. There is not an injunction to seize anything or stop anything going on at Coinbase. It's pretty much going to be a court case that, that determines the scope of what they're able to do in the future, but it's not you know, what you would call a sin. And so they're very different, but I think that the fact that they were issued right after one another speaks to the larger argument that the SEC seems to be trying to paint everybody with a very broad brush, including not just Coinbase and Binance, but past things, particularly FTX. So we know that the SEC has limited enforcement resources, that it likes to send signals to the market as to where it positions itself. So do you think it's fair to say that these lawsuits are not only lawsuits against Binance and Coinbase, but really lawsuits against all exchanges operating in the US? I mean, to a degree, yes, because 
But but even the nature of the lawsuit is sort of at an angle to the operation of an exchange per se, because they identify these specific assets as securities. And in some sense, that's almost more the focus of the consequences here than the impact for other exchanges. Because you've seen, for example, Robinhood immediately delist some of these specific assets that were identified as securities, according to the SEC, in the Coinbase suit. And so for other exchanges, they're actually kind of arguably, you know, we'll see how the cases play out from here, but they're arguably getting a bit of a heads up that the SEC has specific assets that it considers securities. I mean, notably, Ethereum was not listed as one of these security tokens or hypothetical security tokens. Again, the SEC does not have the right to unilaterally make these declarations. This is all stuff that has to actually be litigated. The big question, I think, that would make your point effective is there's no sense that there's going to be any clarity that emerges from this specific prosecution of Coinbase, right? There's not going to suddenly be a regulatory regime under which crypto exchanges can, like, quote unquote, come in and register, as Gary Gensler has represented, is is an option when, in fact, it doesn't seem to really be. It's not so much that this is going to directly impact other exchanges. It's just going to potentially, like, continue and exaggerate the state of uncertainty in which they've been operating all along with maybe like an extra 15% of pressure if things don't go Coinbase's way. But I also should point out that, again, all of this remains to be litigated. And there is at least a pretty significant sentiment among lawyers who know crypto that Coinbase could actually win this. There are different options there. Soon after these lawsuits dropped, uh, I can't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday, but uh, Gary Gensler, chair of the SEC, came out on a TV program and he made a memorable quote, which is to say that we don't need any more digital currency in the US. And this was taken as an interesting comment because the speculation that Gary Gensler, once he leaves the SEC, is interested in taking over the job of US Treasury Secretary. And, you know, the US Treasury already has its own digital currency. It's called the US dollar. And the speculation that um, he wouldn't, in that job, want any competing currencies against that uh, greenback institution. Do you think that's a reasonable sort of thing to say? Or do you think that's just sort of conspiracy minded? I mean, I think it's too grandiose, is what I would say. I don't think it's about him somehow trying to defend the dollar because he wants to be Treasury Secretary someday. What he's doing is he's trying to sort of curry favor in the court of public opinion to put pressure on whoever decides this specific case. Because, you know, if he doesn't win this case, he's never going to be Treasury Secretary. So his focus is on winning this case because, as you point out, he has, well, he's believed to have political ambitions, including Treasury Secretary. Now, the thing about those statements that's very interesting is that they actually might harm his chance to win some of these cases, because what he's expressing is a prejudgment of a sort. And a lot of the legal theories going around, and, and you know, some of these may be plausible, some of these may be what we in crypto call copium or hopium, as in like putting a positive spin on something that looks bad. But a lot of the legal theories going around have to do with procedural treatment of Coinbase and other crypto companies by the SEC, certain provisions in law and in regulatory regimes that require things like fairness and things like a process that is transparent and one that is, as we'll talk about, subordinate to the legislative process. So when Gensler comes out and says, we don't need another digital currency, if you can you know, prove that that claim of his is wrong, um, and especially if you can prove that it doesn't even reflect 
his own actual thinking. For example, you can go back and look at his classes at MIT, where he was talking as recently as 2019 about the promise of blockchains and implicitly of cryptocurrency. And so, you know, if he's simply not even representing his own thinking on the matter fully transparently and accurately, that could, in a court, be taken as further evidence that there was some unfairness to the process, some lack of transparency, some lack of clarity in the development of a regulatory regime. And specifically, you know, he is also saying outright that he doesn't believe cryptocurrency should have a right to exist, that it has no applications. And, and that implies, I think, in the eye of a court, could be read as really trying to jump out ahead of the legislative process, in particular, by the SEC as a regulator deciding that this entire class of thing should not have any path to legitimacy. And so that could be taken very badly by a court that wants to maintain fairness in the system. Right. I mean, it's quite remarkable how Gary Gensler's views on crypto and blockchains have, as they say, evolved over the years. I mean, he was teaching courses on these subjects at MIT. He was also, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal last week, open to a job at Binance, the very company he's now prosecuting in this mm. lawsuit a few years ago when he needed the money. Uh, I mean, can you talk about the kind of evolution of this guy? I mean, he seems to have been in one corner and now he's in another corner. Yeah. I mean, I, I when Gensler was named um, back in 2021, I wrote a couple of columns that were, I think, fairly optimistic about him, specifically because he had seemingly done the work and had you know, said things at the time that reflected at least some understanding of the big picture of the underlying value of these instruments. So I, my impression at the time was that it was going to be good. Although, uh, as Nick Day said in our podcast last week, you know, knowing about something is not necessarily being in favor of it. So, I mean, the fact that Gary Gensler was teaching crypto does not make him a crypto bro, I suppose. Yeah, and perhaps I was a little naive in my perception of that at the time. But the, the shocking thing still to this day is if you know the ins and outs of this stuff, what you would expect, even if you're not pro it, is a slightly more sophisticated and slightly more clear approach. Because I think that one of the big complaints from the industry, but increasingly not from the industry, increasingly we do see signals of, of this perception even from a few Democrats in the House, that there has never been a really linear, clear process for classifying things. For example, I mean, we do still have Ethereum being excluded from these securities claims, even though it's in many ways not that different from some of the other ones that were named, including like Solana, uh, in terms of both its function and, you know, I mean, the, the timeline can seem like ancient history if you're in crypto. But I mean, Ethereum only went live to mainnet in 2015, 2016, depending on how you define it. And, you know, that would still totally be actionable if the SEC now decided that it was a security. And so it's another example of just things that seem to signal wildly different frames of reference for, for evaluating these assets. And, uh, and something that's very ad hoc and, and kind of slapdash, frankly. Even if your goal is to just ban it, provide some intellectual basis for that. So just picking up on Ethereum there, since you brought it up, we're recording this on, on Tuesday, June 13th. And this morning, the SEC was, well, it was forced to release some emails from its former enforcement chief, William Hinman, who made a notorious speech back in 2019, I think it was, or 2018, basically giving Ethereum a 
free pass from securities regulation, which is very controversial because, as you say, there was little institutional or intellectual basis for that. It didn't seem like he was particularly supported from the SEC at large in making that statement. And there's even some speculation, particularly by supporters of Ripple, which has been in a three-year lawsuit because of these very securities laws, as to why he might have made that designation. Uh, There's even speculation, as we reported this morning, that the law firm that he was working for and taking money from at the time of being enforcement chief was a member of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, i.e. a deep state actor in the Ethereum ecosystem. And there's some speculation that that might have influenced his judgment on Ethereum at the time, which has turned mm. out to be enormously beneficial to Ethereum, right? I mean, this is, that speech has been worth billions to Ethereum going forward, hasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, the time frame is even more striking in, in that case, because this was 2018. This was only a couple of years after Ethereum launched. I mean, it's difficult to make much argument that it was any different from the, the ICOs that then exploded in 2018, which led to a lot of securities actions. And I'm not clear on whether Hinman was a political appointee or not. I believe he was. He was previously a political appointee as director of the Division of Corporate Finance, which means he, was, he would have been part of the, the Trump administration. I'm, I'm not totally sure about his SEC situation. but So the release included basically like a Word document with comments from people who were editing the speech. A lot of those people would have been staff, that is like lifetime, or not lifetime, but career bureaucrats in the SEC by and large. And many of them were having a sort of much more skeptical or at least conservative perspective on the statements that Hinman was making. And so that is significant because I think it's fair to say, you know, I don't necessarily know if we can target the Hinman speech specifically in terms of being like a positive environment for Ethereum or crypto. I think it's more fair to say that the Trump administration in general was extremely generous in its treatment of a lot of these um, instruments and venues. And um, I don't, you know, I think that Coinbase partisans are arguing that there's some inconsistency in Gary Gensler going after Coinbase because the SEC approved their IPO listing. But Gary Gensler wasn't running the SEC when that IPO was approved. And I think it's fair to say that he would not approve it now. So what we're dealing with here is just really a, a big transition between administrations who have vastly different different frameworks. So I think that like Ethereum benefited, but so did everybody else from not just the Hanman speech, but the, the general stance of the SEC at that time. And now things are changing. But the real issue is that the change has now been two years in the making, and it still hasn't articulated a very clear rationale for itself. Well, how do you think Ethereum will end up being regulated then? Do you think it will be treated like Bitcoin, i.e. seen as sufficiently decentralized not to be included within this rubric? Or do you think it will be caught up in this maelstrom? Well, I think that one really clear takeaway today on the Hinman emails slash speech is that I don't think sufficiently decentralized should be a phrase that is thrown around in the context of securities judgments for a little while. We'll talk more about a bill that's in the House right now that would lay out a framework for progressive decentralization that would provide, to my awareness, I'm not, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not intimately read in on the details, but it does seem to provide a pathway from a security to a commodity, which some people will say is insane, but essentially you're talking about progressive decentralization, which is a thing in crypto protocols as as Ether demonstrates. I think that leaving the law aside on a purely practical level, I think it's going to be very hard to suddenly declare Ether a security at this point. I think there are a lot of other chains, frankly, where you can go after people and you can have an impact if you're trying to just shut it down. 
But I think A, Ether is genuinely too decentralized to shut down at this point. So this might simply be a strategic decision that the SEC doesn't want to have this fight. Maybe there is a case to be made that Hinman said this once in 2018, and that was enough of a hand tie on the SEC that they were kind of stuck with it. Maybe there is a case to be made for that. But yeah, I I think that whether it's fair or not, Ethereum is looking kind of out of the woods, at least at this point. Things could change, but I think that we're going to see an Ethereum that's basically regulated as a commodity. Right. You mentioned that bill going through Congress. Let's talk about that. So, uh, I mean, Gary Gensler has rumors to have political ambitions, and some say he was acting politically last week with these lawsuits. And that is to say that the SEC was making an end run, arguably, to Congress in making these lawsuits and stating what the US official position is on cryptocurrency when the Congress was, in fact, looking to enact its own regulations, its own rules, its own laws. To talk about the sort of interplay between regulators and politicians here, and do you have any sympathy with US politicians who say, you know, Gary Gensler shouldn't have intervened because we were on it? Well, so I I should really be very clear here that I'm not a lawyer and that, you know, a lot of this is, is theories being advanced by lawyers who may be working for crypto companies who, again, want to hear some copium, want to hear some good news, want to hear that there is a a pathway out of here. But having put up that caveat, the pathway that is being floated as a legal theory for rebutting the Coinbase case in particular is what's known as the Administrative Procedures Act, which was passed in the 1930s under the Franklin Roosevelt administration as, you know, like the Social Security Administration, other bureaucracies under the U.S. government were growing, there were concerns that these bureaucracies would override or, or overstep the authority of legislators. So the, the Roosevelt administration wanted to make sure that bureaucrats didn't overstep the authority of legislators. And so this law was passed that's designed to do that. It's a question that I can't answer whether this would be considered by a judge to be an overstep. There are bills in progress in the House and Senate that provide differing frameworks for crypto regulation. They don't seem likely to pass under a Biden administration for sure. And furthermore, the APA, the Administrative Procedures Act, might be more focused on making sure that regulators implement existing rules correctly than on limiting what they're capable of doing in terms of their interpretation of existing rules. But that's the argument, at least, is that there are these processes underway working towards a law. And crucially, I think the big picture is that there are legislators who believe that there should at least be some way for these crypto tokens to exist, to be tradable legally, and to maybe be issuable legally. And that's a huge divergence from, I think it's fair to characterize the SEC as right now trying to really constrain the right of anybody in the United States to deal in these tokens, in these assets. And so even if the congressional process is not moving very fast, the endpoints are so different that you might find a judge who can say, the SEC is going too far here. We need to figure out some kind of actual legislative pathway or at least some provisional safe harbor until Congress can, can figure it out. And the, over, the SEC is overstepping its bounds here. That's a hypothetical. It's a possibility. I'm not sure how strong that argument is or how likely that conclusion is to, to be the one that a court reaches. Okay, let's take a step back here. Um, so your job here at Coindesk, David, is uh, a chief economist. So when something like uh, this happens, you know, big breaking news, 
occurs like these lawsuits. I mean, how do you think about something like this? And how do you uh, think about making sense of it as a columnist? Yeah, I, I think that my main and instantaneous reaction when these dropped is that people who maybe got interested in crypto through, you know, for better or for worse, through the 20 to 22 cycle, the most recent bull market, you had a lot of new people come in. And I think there are going to be a lot of people who are maybe shocked by this, or at the very least, don't understand the very intense and complicated history behind this. Specifically, and, and I think maybe even people who are not into crypto, but who got became aware of it over the last couple of years, might be very confused as to why Coinbase doesn't just you know register as a securities exchange, why these, uh, these tokens do not register as securities under existing US law. It all sounds very simple when you hear somebody like Gary Gensler talk about it. But there are specific reasons why many tokens can't register. And then there are other reasons why if you did have a registration regime, it would become a problem for the functional implementation of these systems. So, you know, I have a MetaMask wallet that's just attached to my browser. So essentially, I have tokens that are in my computer, let's say, metaphorically, um, that uh, if Gary Gensler had his way, at the very best, many of them would be classified as securities. So then you start getting into really big questions about, well, can I send half of an Apple stock to a website to pay for a pair of pants? Is that a securities transaction? Am I going to like get some sort of securities violation fine if I do that? Because that's essentially what you're doing if you have Filecoin in your MetaMask wallet and then you use that as a payment for a cloud backup service. And that's what a lot of people do these days. That's like a real service that exists. It operates on a token model. And if you get a securities judgment on either that token specifically or for complicated reasons, a lot of other tokens more generally, then you have this real existing service that basically like becomes unusable because of a legal judgment that has nothing to do really with the people using it or even the issuer ultimately in, on some level. And so that's the, that's the part that I think needs to be explained and that we're working on you know, making this case. Hopefully a lot of other people in the crypto industry are focused on making that case too, because I think there are a lot of judges out there that will sit down and look at, you know, maybe from the SEC's perspective, there is an argument to be made here, but we actually have to consider harms and impacts. You get into a court and you're actually able to consider the broader picture. The SEC's job is to look very narrowly at one thing, and it's doing that very well right now, looking very narrowly at one thing. But when you get into a court, the, the more complicated picture starts to emerge and, and matter. Right. Picking up there on surely what is the big unanswered question here. So these lawsuits went after these two big exchange companies. 13 cryptos were named in the Coinbase lawsuit as being securities. But then there's like 50,000 other tokens which potentially could be securities and which uh, SEC officials, I think, have mentioned as possibly being securities. But it seems from what you're saying that it's not really clear whether they really are securities and whether the SEC will treat them as securities. Yeah. I mean, my understanding is that there is simply no neat way for the SEC to like survey this landscape of 50,000 coins and just wave a magic wand and go, these are all securities now under the law. I think that in effect, if you have a few cases where big ones are deemed securities, then there will be consequences for that. 
but it's a process that's specific to each entity, to each technology, to each blockchain, to each organization. Like they're all structured differently in ways that, you know, if the SEC has to go through a court process for each one, that's not viable. This is why a lot of us are saying that what we actually want and need is a disclosure regime where you require people to make clear and true statements ahead of issuing a token. You still have probably a lot of people who don't disclose anything at all because they're criminals, but at least you then have some distinction. And you also have something on the record that you can hold people to when it does come time to go after somebody for being a fraud. And so, you know, a disclosure regime is actually the easier way for the SEC to actually make a designation ultimately about whether something is a security, but they don't want to do that because then that implies that there's a path to legitimacy. And again, the underlying tone of all of this is that the SEC wants to get rid of crypto entirely. So you really believe that? You're really on the side of people who think that Gary Gens is really trying to kill crypto? I mean, it, it, it sounds so apocalyptic, but you know, this has been building for a while. And I, I think that I should say I, I am not in the fully apocalyptic camp, but only because I don't think he's going to succeed. Hmm. I think that we, you talked to Nick last week. This is one where, where he and I differ quite substantially. He, he's more skeptical of the read that there is a quote unquote choke point 2.0 effort going on. You know, I, I, I think that when Gary Gensler comes out and says, we don't need digital currency, he means it. Um, and he means it pretty explicitly. Just catching our listeners up on choke point 2.0. Reference that is a reference to an Obama administration era program whereby that administration effectively cut off banking services to industries that it deemed unacceptable, uh, like payday lending, guns, uh, and other illicit industries like that. And they did that through the banking system. And there's an argument that a similar thing has been happening in crypto recently, whereby the government is trying to cut off services to these crypto institutions as a way of indirectly killing crypto. And I should also mention another recent case, uh, actually, on that, as long as we're on the topic, which is that Custodia Bank is alleging that the Federal Reserve Board interfered and unjustly denied their application to have a Fed master account because they were planning to custody crypto. That's still in process in the courts, and you know there may be other reasons for that decision having been made, but it does add to the perception that the U.S. federal government is just simply closing the door on crypto and doesn't want there to be any path to legitimacy whatsoever. So just taking the ball forward a little bit here, David, I mean, a lot of people are speculating that these lawsuits will play out for years. I mean, these companies are some of the richest in crypto. They have a lot of legal support, a lot of lawyers in their camp, and probably more than the SEC does. I mean, when do you think we'll get to an end game here? And do you think this kind of court process will supersede the legislative process, the congressional process? Uh, which do you think will act first as a signal for the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very difficult to predict on the progress of the cases. I do know that, I mean, they're, they're moving forward. There have been judges named and, you know, they're, they're going, but obviously there will be rounds and rounds of appeals and these things do generally tend to take years. So, you know, I'm not uh, the authority to make a prediction there on the timeline. But I mean, I will say I'm not optimistic on a, a legislative solution. I, I don't like this because it seems weirdly undemocratic in a way, but um, I, I don't think the, I think the, the next presidential election could be a real factor in the, the progress of these cases because they could take that long. You know, again, this goes back to the stuff about the APA, like, does that even apply if there's really no real legislative outcome on the horizon here? Mm. Um, 
we're really not going to get a solution at all, no matter how fast this goes, is the, is the reality. I mean, even these cases are not going to close all of the regulatory gaps that crypto is, is dealing with. And ultimately, like that's the problem with the process being pursued this way, is that you know, if you only regulate by enforcement, you're not really giving a complete picture. You're not really giving people rules of the road for operating. You're just creating a different set of uncertainties. I don't think we're going to have real clarity per se anytime soon. I do think that there could be impacts that are effectively clarity. And I do think we're going to have real problems with capital raising in this environment, for example. So again, that's why it's called choke point, right? You strangle, you make it slow, you make it uncomfortable and painful, and, and you make people suffer rather than actually laying out what your real intents are and just having done with it. Right. It's the ambiguity that kills you. I mean, it's also worth saying, I think, that uh, AI is, is the big kind of hype thing at the moment, and that's already drawing away capital and talent away from uh, you know, Web3 and, and crypto. So, and we're also in a crypto winter, and now this uncertainty comes along with these lawsuits. So uh, it's kind of a bad time for funding something in crypto, you would think. Well, in the United States, to be clear. I mean, this is the other thing to, to, to keep in mind is that, yes, the US has an overwhelmingly dominant position as a source of capital in crypto, but it's certainly not the whole ball game. Maybe it's 50%. And so that's just worth keeping in mind, too, is that all of this will continue outside of the United States. There are options and there is a path forward regardless of how this goes. So that's worth keeping in mind. My own view here, just for a second, for what it's worth, is that I think uh, you know we're hearing so much about tokenized securities and real-world assets. This is the idea of tokenizing things in the real world and putting them on a blockchain. And that's much more of a mainstream Wall Street institutional play, right? So I think what happens out of these lawsuits is that crypto becomes less about you know the question of tokens being securities or not, and uh, more about regulated securities exchanges trading in these new types of assets. And I think if you listen to these Wall Street, they're not interested in like meme coins and funny, you know, speculative vehicles. They're interested in, in actual assets that represent real things. And, and I think there's a strong argument that to say that crypto becomes less about this ephemeral thing and more about this so-called real thing that will be traded on registered securities exchanges. Yeah, that's certainly plausible. And more generally, I think there are always going to be not just regulatory gaps, but also applications that clearly fall outside of the stuff that the SEC is trying to do. I mean, knock on wood, but like NFTs fall under that category, I think, too, where there is a big category of stuff that, I mean, obviously, we can debate the merits of NFTs, but they don't seem to be securities. And so, you know, they will continue trading and, and other things will also fall in that bucket. And you know, new applications like asset tracking, I would say particularly for globalized blockchain-backed exchanges of tokenized real-world assets. That's very interesting. Again, just similar to the way that Coinbase is not going to disappear overnight. This is not the end of the industry, right? So that's, that's very important to keep in mind too. That's good to hear. So thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. That was excellent. And uh, you can check out David Z. Morris's work on uh, coindesk.com. Always insightful. Thank you very much, David. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. If you have any questions coming out of this discussion, and I'm sure you do because there's uh, many, many unresolved issues here, we want to hear from you. So you can do that through Twitter. When we put out a tweet about the show, you can respond there or especially on Spotify. There's a Q&A feature on there when we release the podcast and we would love to hear from you and we will take up your questions on future editions of this show. And I'm sure these uh, issues that we've been discussing today will, will run and run for many months. So we want to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Schiller, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.
Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.